last time we were together, the last message, we talked about Cain and Abel. We saw Cain was the main subject there in that part of the Bible. We saw what unbelief did to Cain. What was the result, the consequences of sin there? But that's not the end of the story. See, the Genesis narrative traces the line of Cain through to its full development. It tells us what happened to him, what happened to this person who rebelled against God, and and he left. Remember, he had to go east, and he went off to the land of Nod, and he left in angry defiance against God. And we see, as we come to the text today, one of the first things we learn about is Cain got married. And this always brings up, well, not always, but sometimes it brings up, and particularly for unbelievers who love to attack the Bible, they want to know this question here on the screen. Who was Mrs. Cain? I don't know her name, so I'm just calling her Mrs. Cain. Well, to me it's obvious, but for some it's not. So just follow my train of thought here. For me, there's only one solution that actually fits the biblical text. You can see the family tree there is left with a question mark for who is Mrs. Cain. And the Bible is clear that all people descended from Adam. Uh, In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Adam is called the first man. And Eve was so named because she was, according to Genesis 3, the mother of all living. So Adam and Eve, the first married couple God brought together. The Bible teaches that all people come from this first single human couple, Adam and Eve. And since Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, then to me it's pretty obvious really that Cain either married his sister or one of his nieces. Right? People back then lived a lot, lot, lot longer. For example, Adam lived to 930 years old. He had a lot of children, as uh, you can see in the next slide here, uh, you'll, you'll see, you follow Cain's line. Obviously, Abel didn't have any children. He died. But Cain, or Adam lives to 930. He has a lot of children. And some, some have said, uh, if, you, if you counted them all up, may have been over a million people in his, in his family line by the time he, he died. And, of course, uh, he, they had other sons and daughters. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. <laughs> it wasn't just Cain and Abel. So who was Mrs. Cain? A sister or a niece? And, of course, because you're going way, way back, they didn't have all the mutations and the faults and the genes like we do these days, so it would have been fine back then for him to do that. So that's who Mrs. Cain is. So just settled that big issue right off the bat here. So let's, let's take a look at God's Word and read from His Word here. In Genesis 4, verse 16, starting in verse 16, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Then he built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born 
Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujel, and Mehujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We'll stop there for today. So what we're going to do today, because this is what the text does, we're going to contrast two civilizations, if you will, two cultures growing up from within one family. We have, we have a civilization with God and a civilization without God. What are the characteristics of these two civilizations here? Well, we'll see what the text says. And here's the proposition from the Word of God today. It is that God wants you to forsake your way and depend on Him. And we're going to see those two contrasts in these two civilizations. One civilization does their thing their way. The other depends on God. He does it His way. So first of all, let's take a look at the characteristics of civilization without God. What does this text tell us a civilization without God looks like? Well, number one, first characteristic is there is a loss of roots. There's a loss of roots when we leave God out of our civilization. Verse 17 speaks of Cain building a city, and what happened from that was that there was a resulting civilization. But to understand the civilization here, we have to actually go back to the verses we saw last week in which Cain is said to have become a wanderer or a fugitive as a result of his sin. We find it in God's words of judgment here in verse 12. God says something to this effect that, Cain, you will be a relentless wanderer on the earth or a wandering fugitive. We also find it when Cain complains. He says, I'm going to be this relentless wanderer on the earth, as verse 14 says. We even find this idea in the name of the land to which Cain goes. Notice he went east to the land of Nod. Nod actually means wandering. So you get this idea of wandering, being a fugitive over and over here. There's this idea, there's there's a loss of roots as a result of, of sin, the consequences of sin. Now the point is that Cain remained a wanderer at heart. God said this would be a, a, the consequence of his sin. And, and even though he's attempting to settle down and build a civilization in the city, he's, 
he can't really settle down. And so having rejected God, he had severed his roots, and now he's condemned to this restlessness. Well, can't you see that in our society today? Throw God out, pretend he doesn't exist, and that's the result you get. You get a loss of roots, and you get a lot of restlessness and a lot of wandering. People are searching for meaning. They're searching for purpose. They, they want love, joy, and peace, but they don't want to find it outside of God. And so rootlessness is the basic ingredient, not only of the, the first civilization, but of, of all secular cultures, including our own. And if ever there was a day in which civilization was attempting to form itself without God, it's the day that we live in now. And so, my friend, there's a lesson to be learned here for us today. See, your roots are in God. Like it or not, that's where they are. That's where they should be. And so, you want to try to live life without God? Then God says you will be condemned as a wandering fugitive. So God's saying, don't try to live your life without him. It doesn't work. See, you are made in his image. You are made to worship him. Life doesn't work without him. So don't attempt it. The second characteristic of uh, civilization without God is there's a closeness, but it's the closeness is without community. There's no community. Did you notice what verse 17 says? That Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enoch. So we see the what happens here is Cain's first two acts following God's judgment from the murder of his brother Abel is, first of all, Cain has sexual relations with his wife, and she becomes pregnant and gives birth to this man named Enoch. Now, by the way, this is not the same Enoch who walked with God and God takes to heaven. Different one. But the second thing we see happening here is is Cain builds a city in verse 17. And, And the two are, notice how they go together. See, he's been driven from the company of of those others who lived at that time, from his parents and, and his siblings. And so Cain now tries to surround himself with other people. And how does he do this? He does it through procreation, and then he tries to consolidate these people into the first city. Now, as I read this story, I sense it must have been an unpleasant city. If we are to take as an indication, the only example of Cain's descendants who, who is pictured for us at, at great length here is, is one of his descendants named Lamech. And it must have been a culture of very hard, arrogant self-seekers. That's the way rootless people are. You try to live life without God, what else do you expect? Rootless people are, are not less rootless for having gathered together in a city. If anything, it just becomes more evident. They're not less hard for being together in one place, are they? The loneliest people often are people in big cities. You ever notice that? You can be in huge groups and still be lonely. 
just watch people walk around Queen Street, go down downtown Auckland, just watch them. Lots of people, but no interaction with each other. There, there's really no, no community going on there. And so some of the saddest stories I, I know concern city people. And this is one reason why the greatest task facing the Christian church today is winning city people to Christ. It's very difficult. It's, it's hard to get churches planted in inner cities for many reasons. And there are Christians who are opposed to the city. They regard the city as godless, and, in, and true in many ways it is. They think of urban cultures as being, well, that's just man's invention, and therefore utterly opposed to God. But while we acknowledge the truthfulness as a description, we deny that that is the whole story. We need to be careful that we don't just go out and attack cities because we see all the terrible stuff happening there. See, the problem with the godless city is not the city itself. It's the godless part. The problem of civilization without God is not the civilization part. It's the godless characteristics. That's the problem. And so our task is not to abandon cities. You might be tempted to do that. Uh, I, I certainly am tempted to, to, I want to go buy a farm, you know, get away from the city. I, I, I feel that pull to the rural, okay? There's many things about city that just drive me crazy. But we don't want to abandon it. We want to build God's kingdom where God's people are and where lost people are. We want the, the godless people to be reached. And in so doing, we, by the way, what are we looking for? We're looking for a city, aren't we? Believers look for the city, the new Jerusalem, the, the capital city of heaven. That's where you're going to spend eternity. So seek it. Look for it. Hebrews 11, verse 10 says, There is a great city of heaven whose foundation and maker is God himself. So the characteristic we, we see here is there's this Closeness without community, it's it's a problem. That's one of the blessings, by the way, of the church. We we, we want to seek closeness and community. Hopefully you get both at the same time. And we want to hopefully, hopefully we're doing that so well that we're drawing unbelievers to, to see, whoa, what's going on? The church is to display the glory of God in, in, in many ways, that being one of them. There, there should be a closeness and community. The third characteristic of a civilization without God is there's this worship of beauty. Worship of beauty. Look at verse 19. Uh, you may not pick it up in the English, but you, you can see it in the names of people often. For example, Lamech's wives. Uh, Lamech, by the way, was the, as far as we know, according to Scripture, was the first bigamist, had multiple wives. And if the names of his wives are a guide to things here, he apparently chose these women just for their physical attraction. He wasn't picking them based upon uh, moral stature or their spiritual commitments or their their heart, <laughs> what's, what's inside them. It's interesting, uh, the one wife of Lamech, Ada, 
It means pleasure, ornament, or beauty. His second wife, Zillah, means shade, perhaps referring to a luxuriant covering of hair. Apparently she had beautiful hair. And even uh, Lamech's daughter's name here, Naamah, means loveliness. Of course, names mean something in the Bible. And here we've got a culture that's committed to physical pleasure and beauty and charm. Uh, he doesn't seem to care about the inner qualities of the heart, of the mind. Isn't it interesting the Bible calls us to, to look to the inner beauty? particularly the inner beauty of females. First uh, Peter chapter 3 talks about the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So men, particularly you single men, that's what you want to look for. Look for the same thing that God sees as beautiful. See, God says, what did he say in Peter? It's the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Spirit, the inner beauty. Uh, look at Proverbs thirty-one as as maybe an example of that. And so the names of Cain's descendants here contain the simple name for God. I don't know if you picked up on this, but whenever you see, well, in English the the letters E L, uh, you'll see that in Mahujal and Methushel, uh, L is short for Elohim. Elohim is that one of the names of God that we've seen in the Bible. And so there's this concession to religion, a, a form of religion, but it's just merely a form of godliness. And they've denied the power thereof. It's the kind of religion that Cain chose by his aesthetically pleasing sacrifice. He didn't want to do things God's way. He wanted to do things his way. And, and sadly, it's all too common even today. People... They just, they got a form of godliness, but they deny the power. It's, they, they want an aesthetically pleasing sacrifice. They want to do things their way and not God's way. And so we get a religion of, oh, maybe even beautiful liturgies, uh, maybe even beautiful words, beautiful music, but, but without the promise of, of, of God's forgiveness of sin, because a lot of people don't even want to mention sin, talk about it. So people don't even know what's the solution to their greatest problem. And they don't want to talk about the shed blood of Jesus Christ, because that's, well, that's just gory business. We don't want to talk about that either. Uh, after all, there was one liberal Christian who, who said, uh, you know, that's, that's just divine child abuse. So we're not going to talk about that. And so the same is true of, of other professions as well. It's interesting. You see this, this worship of beauty here even in other ways in the text, for example. Did you notice uh, the other professions that were starting around this time and, and the various arts? Some of the occupations of Lamech's children, for example, were um, we, we have somebody who raised, who raised livestock. Uh, there was somebody who was the inventor of music and musical instruments. Uh, Tubal Cain was uh, apparently a blacksmith who was able to work with bronze and iron. And you say, well, what's the point of all this? <laughs> uh, well, one point is not to say that all these things are bad in and of themselves. They're not inherently evil. Not all of them are, of course, any more than 
to say that the city is inherently evil. We remember, of course, that Abel was a herdsman. He was accepted by God on the basis of his sacrifice of an animal. So, of course, that's not inherently evil. Later in Israel's history, God's Spirit came upon certain craftsmen. You can read Exodus. You see how God enabled people to create works of art. For example, at the tabernacle, God enables people to build the various pieces of furniture and the cloth and everything that was used in the tabernacle. We also see God enabling David to be a musician. So clearly it's legitimate to participate in the arts and to enjoy the beautiful things that God has made and the abilities that he's given to his people. That is, if you can afford them. <laughs> Provided such participation and such enjoyment is, uh, is in obedience to God and hopefully resulting in thankfulness to him for that beauty. One of the problems we have is we, we tend to worship the creation instead of the creator. Right? Of course we don't want to do that. We don't want to look at the arts and the music and all these occupations and say, wow, that's cool. Well, it might be. The point is, you say, wow, the God of that is awesome and worthy of worship. And so God helped the person who enjoys the gifts more than the giver or who, who goes and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. It's all backwards. And it was this reversal of values here that characterized Cain's civilization. They had it backward. We need to be aware that, that we don't get caught up in the worship of beauty. We want to be caught up in the worship of Yahweh. So be careful as you, you go through life. There is a lot of beauty to behold. Uh, God's creation is beautiful. His people are beautiful. The things that God's creatures who are made in His image, the things we do and we create, can be beautiful. Be careful, though, you don't worship the creation instead of the Creator. The fourth and last characteristic of a civilization without God is pride. Pride. Let's look at this. We see one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, had great pride. And so so this is just culminating in this arrogant defense of murder, of all things. You look at verse 23. Can't you just see Lamech? And he, he's calling his two wives here together, and he's, he's demanding that they listen to his ranting. But hey, look, look what he says. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Wow, what a thing to be boasting about. It wasn't even someone of his equal so like status. I've killed a young man, an inexperienced man. Oh, what a big man you are, Lamech. <laughs> and the, the guy, oh, what did he do to deserve it? He wounded Lamech. I don't know. How did he wound him? The Bible doesn't say. Did he do it with his mouth? Did he do it with his fist? Who knows? Does it really matter? Of course, he shouldn't have done that. He's saying that he's, 
I'm better able to take care of myself by murdering other people than God is able to take care of me. Oh, what great pride. One commentator said this about Lamech here in this passage I'm quoting. Ponder the white space between that verse and the next verse in the Bible. For the story of Cain's family ceases abruptly, and that next verse announces the birth to Adam of another son whose line is to go forward, is to forward the purposes of God. Lamech and his civilized, lawless family are never heard of again. In the space that follows his song of the sword, we must see the rising waters of the deluge which devoured them all. They were ungodly, and their ungodliness brought the just recompense of its reward. They were blotted out from under heaven in order to teach us that the day will come when the judgment fires of God will do the same for the entire creation, end quote. Wow. Well, we get an idea of why the, that deluge or the worldwide flood needed to come. If you look at chapter 6, verse 5, we see, look at chapter 6, verse 5, we see God's evaluation of the godless time period it was. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It just got really bad, didn't it? But there's more that can be said here. We are seeing a civilization without God. We are seeing its characteristics. For after Genesis 4.24, there is the beginning of the history of a different civilization. One, hopefully, that you and I can more identify with. And their history began with, of course, the righteous Abel and Seth. And we're going to see a very long line of people in Genesis chapter 5. We get that big genealogy of, of Seth's line. And so it continues through on into godly Noah. And I've given you a uh, family tree, sort of, didn't I? Maybe I forgot to put it on there, but... But we'll take a look when we get to Genesis 5. You're going to see that, that line tracing out from Seth all the way into Noah. Noah's descendants, or at least some of them, were, were godly. Uh, there was a time period when uh, they, they lost sight of God, if you will. But we see this, this line emerging again in, in Genesis chapter 12 through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's seen in godly people within Israel. Comes and goes, but there's always this remnant, if you will. And finally, you get to the time of the birth of Christ, and the, the line of history is, is not dead. It's still flowing. There were people who still knew God, who, people who still worshiped God, and fortunately there are people like Joseph and Mary who knew God, loved God. There were people like Zechariah and Elizabeth who knew God and worshipped God. And there were also people, according to Luke chapter 2, who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And today it's seen in those millions of people who have turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ and who by the grace of God are determined to serve Him wholly. And there will always be a remnant 
May you be a part of that remnant. And so, my friends, we need a transformed civilization. But it's not going to be built on those who have lost their roots. It's not going to be built by people who worship beauty. It's not going to be based upon people who are full of pride and live their lives in cruelty and an independence of God. It's going to be built only by those whose lives have been surrendered to God. It's going to be built on people who are transformed by God. Let's just take quickly a look here at the characteristics of a civilization with God. And by the way, note the contrast. It's not about what they did. It's more about who they are. God doesn't say a whole lot here. But what he does say is very important. So let's take a look at these characteristics. Number one, first characteristic of a civilization with God is there is faith in God. Faith in God. Look at verse 25, because the Bible says that Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So this section here concludes with the birth of Seth. And again, my friends, what do we see? We see God's grace. And how do we see this? Well, Seth means granted, and that's why in our English we have the word granted here. You get the sense of verse 25, she named him granted, saying, hey, God has granted me another child. So what's Eve doing here? Eve attributed the birth of her child to God, to, to the grace of God. God's the one who enabled her to even give birth to another child. Well, let's contrast Eve's testimony here with what she said when Cain was born. You remember what, remember what she said? Eve said, when Cain was born, she said, I have brought forth a man, even a deliverer. You see the difference? Her statement is a profession of faith in God's promise. She's, she's recognizing literally Yahweh. Here is the deliverer. And that was commendable. But now as we look back and you contrast that statement with what she, she says here at the birth of her son Seth, hopefully you can see there's a flaw. And it starts with the first word. It starts with, her previous statement with Cain born, she says, I, I. So what she had to learn and what God taught her through Cain's very sad story is that the deliverer could not come by her or her husband's own doing, but it would be the gift of God. The gift of God. And so the second time around, she doesn't start with saying, I. She says, God has granted me another child. You see the difference. And so the point is, a godly culture puts its faith in God. There's, all, there's another point to be made here, is that Eve's faith also shined because she, notice she says in verse 25, she talks about another offspring. That is a, a, a literal allusion, going back to chapter 3, verse 15, talking about the Another seed. It's a reference to the promise that God had given them in chapter 3, verse 15, about her seed would eventually crush the serpent's 
head. So the, ba- the gift of baby Seth ensured that the promise would stay alive. And indeed, we know what did God say in chapter 3, verse 20, that Eve would be the mother of all living. And so she believed the promise. Where does her faith lie? Her faith lies in God. And He is being gracious in granting her another child. The second characteristic of a civilization with God is there is a correct doctrine of man. <laughs> a correct doctrine of man. This is so crucial. Look what verse 26 says. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now Seth understood the wickedness that corrupted the human race. How did he get that? I don't know. Maybe Adam was a good teacher. Or maybe he could see it. Uh, but the point is not obvious in our English translations. But it's, it's certainly obvious in the Hebrew. Uh, if you look at the name of Seth's son here, Enosh, it's important to remember that names are important to God, and they are important in Scripture. Enosh means frail one, or that he is mortal. So Seth was so impressed with the weakness of mere human beings that he actually gives his, his the, the, the name of his son is indicating some truth. He's communic- communicating truth for the very name of his son, that he is the mortal one. He is this frail one. So instead of boasting about himself like Lamech does, what does Seth do? Seth's confessing his need for God. So my friends, it's not the godly who have a low view of man. Uh, we, We get accused of that because we talk about how mankind is corrupted by sin. We're totally depraved. and We talk this way because that's the way Scripture talks about us. The reality is, though, we have a realistic view. Even though we often be accused of having a low view by those who reject Christianity. See, the godly do not exalt man to an absolute position in the universe. See, we're not getting better. (laughs) There is no spark of divinity within us. Yes, we're made in God's image. But we are not little g gods. See, they do not deny the corruption. We speak of the fall of mankind. We speak of sin. We speak of the image of God that is corrupted. But nevertheless, there is an image. And so at the same time we talk about that, they give him, the godly, uh, give him the only true grounding for worth. Why are you worth something? Because you are made in the image of God. So man being made in the image of God gives great worth. So you're destined for an eternity. So, My friends, part of that image is you have a soul. And that soul is forever. The question is where? Will you spend eternity in the lake of fire? Or will you spend eternity, eternity with God in heaven? The last characteristic of a civilization with God is there is total dependence on God. Total dependence on God. Notice what they're doing in the text here at the end of verse 26. Because at this time it says the people began to call upon the name of 
the Lord. So it's dependence on God for what? For salvation, to start with. But it should be a dependence upon God for all things. See, the line of Seth had recognized that sin was no mere imperfection of our human nature. (laughs) But it was actually something that was destined to destroy us as individuals, as well as an entire culture, unless God's grace could overcome that. And so these individuals now threw themselves on God. They are putting themselves in dependence on God. They're trusting in God for their physical as well as their spiritual salvation. Notice the Bible says they called upon God. That literally means they proclaimed God. The idea is the people began to make proclamation about the very nature of God, and they recognized His name. Did you notice God's name there? Because it is confusing in our English Bibles. When you see those letters L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that is God's Hebrew name called Yahweh. Now that says something about Him and God's nature. And so this is the the distinctiveness of God's people. They know God, they know Yahweh, and they proclaim Him in His very nature. They proclaim the character of the Lord. They sing His praises, and that's what God's people have always done throughout the various periods of history. And so thus, this section of Scripture is concluding here with a shout of grace, because we've seen some really bad news, haven't we? We have seen some bad news, we've seen a lot of sin, we've seen the consequences of sin, but when we see God's judgment fall, we need to look for His grace. Praise God. God doesn't end it here. He could have, and it would have been just if He did. But God, we're going to see very soon, is going to save some people alive. He's going to put them on a big boat, we call the ark, and He's going to start over. And so we see Seth's line going on into Noah. But our text here provides a model for us to understand civilization. It helps us to understand our culture today and its rise. We have a rise in our culture of of all sorts of things. There's an abundance. There is a rise in music. There's a rise in the arts. There's a rise in technology. And none of those things, by the way, are inherently evil. They can all be used for good, but every single one of those things can also be used for wickedness. And so we we see a a rise that's very impressive, but in this rise there's also a demise because of sin. There's a fall. And so the only hope is to call upon the name of the Lord. Proclaim Him. Know Him. Who is He? Do you know Him? That's the only hope for our culture. This is the only hope for you and your soul. It's the only hope for the church is to call upon Yahweh. And so, I ask you, my friend, will you forsake your way for God's way? Will you depend totally on God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the contrast you have shown us here between the way of Cain and the way of Seth. May we forsake our way for your way. May we be committed to you and 
May we put our faith totally in you and not in ourselves or in anything else. May our dependence and our trust and belief be in you and in you alone. Forgive us because we are so easily distracted in our hearts, so easily wander and follow our own ways. May we see the folly of our way. May we confess our sin and believe that you are a God who is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we praise you. As we see your judgment, we have also seen your grace. May you be magnified, exalted, honored, and glorified. May we praise you as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.